Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Thanks, Jen. Andrew was born in Dunfermline, Scotland. Born into a cottage with a main floor, with a main room, one half of a cottage and another family on the other half. The main room that they were in served as the main room, the dining room, the bedroom, a living room. They fell in very hard times, and with the country they were in in starvation, Andrew's family moved to Allegheny, Pennsylvania, in the United States in 1848 for the prospect of a better life. His family had to borrow money in order to migrate. Allegheny itself was a very poor area. At his first job at age 13 in 1848, Andrew's starting wage was $1.20 per week. At age 15, Andrew became a telegraph messenger for a wage of $2.50 per week. He was a very hard worker, he had memorized all the locations of Pittsburgh's businesses and the faces of the important men. He paid close attention to his work and within a year was promoted. He developed a passion for reading. His capacity and alertness and willingness to work hard led him to getting a job with the Pennsylvania Railroad Company. And his advancement through the company was rapid and he learned much about investment and about management. Investment and involvement, especially in the railroad and iron and steel industries, made him rich. At one point, an investment of $40,000 brought returns of a million dollars in a single year. On March 2, 1901, Andrew formed the United States Steel Corporation, the first corporation in the world with a billion-dollar market capitalization. Philanthropist with a particular interest in culture and literature. He built or endowed several colleges, and in our day, he's probably best known for building Carnegie Hall. Adjusted for wealth in our day, market value, and so on, Andrew Carnegie's personal and net worth was five times greater than Bill Gates. It's quite a journey from half a room in a cottage in Scotland. Genghis Khan was born without a home and went on to create what was by then the largest land empire in history, greater than that of Alexander the Great or the Roman Empire. Speaking of which, the Roman Emperor Diocletian, his father was a slave. There's something about rags to riches stories that we love. 
And one of the great stories is that of David. Rural teenager who killed a giant and saved an army. From being the object of a 10-year manhunt by one king to sitting on the throne as that king's successor. From a shepherd boy to an empire builder. And if rags to riches stories inspire people with hope that maybe this could happen to me, David's story is all the more remarkable for us because his story is actually parallel to what has happened to us. In fact, Christian people who have identified themselves with Jesus of Nazareth, we have been drawn out of the incomprehensible depths of sin and elevated not only to be in relationship with the King of Kings, but actually, to use the biblical phrase, partakers in his own divine nature. That's pretty astonishing. We have experienced rags to riches like no one in history has experienced rags to riches. But 30 years into David's 40-year reign, his son Absalom led the whole nation in rebellion. And 70 years old, David was forced to flee for his life into the wilderness. And how much it reminded him of his flight before King Saul, we can only guess. So with his meteoric rise, rags to riches, Was it going to end in a nosedive into a wretched death far from his throne, far from his subjects who once had been loyal to him? Now, when God elevates a person, isn't that supposed to be a constant onward, upward growth, a line that keeps going up and to the right? So what does that mean for us then? Will David's story still parallel ours? Might the wilderness become our experience, too. I'm 45 years old, and I have lived more than half of my life as what I would call a serious Christian. I grew up in a church, but it was only when I was 19 that I really began to understand God's reality and to order my life accordingly. And what I thought in those early years of faith was that as I got older, God would be increasingly real increasingly close, that I would progress to the place where I was constantly aware of God's presence in constant conversation with him and that I could hear his voice as clearly as you could hear mine. I'm not sure why I thought that. Certainly not from reading the Bible. And what I find after 25 years of living as a Christian, I find that there are times of spiritual dryness and the sense of God's absence. Spiritual director Henry Nouwen has said that in his later years, he discovered that his times of spiritual dryness were actually more intense. Many others, too, have discovered that this thing we call a relationship with God seems to get harder, not easier. And man, is that frustrating. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have felt frustrated because you just wish that God would make himself more real to you, and why is he not doing that? It's in the wilderness that David writes this psalm. He's separated from the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's home. He misses God. 
He had worshipped God in the sanctuary, and now his soul longs for God in the same way that his body thirsts for water in this dry and weary wilderness he finds himself in. And you, I'm sure, have felt times where you thought there was distance between you and God. That you were in the wilderness while God somehow had remained in his own place. I have. Thirsty for God. Longing for God. Desperately wishing I could have an experience of God. And you've had times where you knew that he was near, where his presence was almost palpable. You could touch it. And when that nearness had already removed any doubts that you had. But now, where is all that? Maybe that sense of God's absence comes at a time when you feel like you need it more than ever. C.S. Lewis, after the death of his wife, reflected on that and wrote this. Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, when you're so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims on you as an interruption, if you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There is no light in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this, what can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so absent a help in time of trouble? End quote. That's the feeling of being in the wilderness. And many of you have felt it, and many of you might be feeling it today. For many of us, though, our wilderness experience might just be very mundane. It's just a dry spell spiritually. It's a former passion that has just dwindled into ritual, like spouses who become just roommates. And we ask, how did I get here? From the height, how did I get to where I am now? And we may not be in a crisis like David was, but this Psalm 63 is for anyone who has felt the absence of God. Notice the intensity of David's need. His wording is very, very strong in this psalm. My soul thirsts, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And in your mind, you see somebody crawling up a sand dune, dressed in tatters, hands outstretched, desperately hoping that there is an oasis on the other side. That's what David was feeling like, longing for God to that extent. Last week, Sunday morning, some of you know, I ran in a race. And there are people, thousands of people, who are running 10 kilometers or half marathons or full marathons. Now, before a run, a runner will make sure that they've had good drink before they run. And every three kilometers along the route, there are volunteers at the side of the road who are holding up cups of water or Gatorade and they're just shouting water water and anyone who runs by can just grab a cup 
and try to drink it. Other people carry water with them. They have bottles of water in belts around their body so that they always have water every step that they're running. They know that they'll be desperate for water as they go. Our hearts, our souls are desperate for God. Sometimes we know it, sometimes we ignore it, sometimes we get distracted from it, but that thirst is there for every single one of us. What makes David's thirst more desperate, though, is that he remembers when he had had an abundance of water. No one recognizes that they're thirsty unless they know what it feels like to have a drink. Well, David had had that. He had had an experience of God. He had walked with God for a long time. He knew what it meant to have God near, to have God providing. And so his thirst now in the wilderness is all the more desperate. I know what it's like to drink deeply and be satisfied. He says in Psalm 42, quote, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go up with a multitude, leading the, leading the procession to the house of God. He says the same thing exactly in Psalm 63, I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've, be, I've beheld your power and glory. I know that your love is better than life. I've been at the well, and now I'm in the wilderness, and my spirit thirsts. I've been satisfied, and now I'm thirsty. Do you know that God's love is better than life, by the way? It's a very abstract thought, but think of it this way. We are not given God's love so that our life can be complete or that we, in, we may enjoy our life that much more. We have been given life in order that we may enjoy God's love. God's love is greater than, better than, higher than life. And David knows this. And I hope you know it too, because it's true. God's love is infinitely better than life itself. How many of us are conscious of the fact that to know the love of God is of greater priority and provides greater contentment than whatever else we are doing or anything else that we are seeking? And I know from experience that to get into the habit of setting God aside, and for me that means ignoring prayer and the scripture, that to set God aside is to drink sand, and that before long I'm thirsty. Sometimes I feel guilt, which is different. But when I realize that I'm missing God and not failing God, then I realize that I'm thirsty. When I set God aside, most often is because I just couldn't be bothered. I got up too late. I'm doing other things in the day. At the end of the day, I just want to unwind, and when bedtime comes, I'm just too tired to bother. So I put it off until tomorrow, and the next day, and then the next day. Now, you set aside God sometimes for other reasons, and only you know what they are. You feel like God has failed you, or you're running too hard during the day, or you've filled your schedule, or you've set your heart on other things. 
God's love is better than life, and to live unconscious of that love is to live unhappy. And to set it aside is the most foolish thing that one could do. David felt the intensity of his thirst. We don't always, but David felt it more intensely sometimes than we even do. But notice the intentionality of David's trust in God. Earnestly I seek, verse 1, my lips will praise, I will bless you, I will lift my hands, I remember you, because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings, my soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Yes, I'm in the wilderness, and yes, I'm thirsty, but I know that I'm okay with you. When I walk through the wilderness, Lord, blessed be your name. I've often lamented my wilderness times. And I know when those times are of my own doing. But I often feel like God should try a little bit harder to keep me closer. After Jesus' baptism, the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, we read. And is it possible that sometimes we're in the wilderness... Because God has put us there. Could it be that the very fact that we recognize that we're in the wilderness is a sign of God's presence? Some people don't even realize that they've moved from the well onto the sand. But if you realize that you've gone from the well and are now in the sand, that means that you're aware of the well and want to go back there. And maybe that's a sign of the reality of God in your life. Not that you're in danger, but that you're healthy. I'm the subject of all my illustrations today, <laughs> sorry. But when Cara and I first became parents, whenever our baby made a noise, we were right there. What does he need? How can we help him? But after not very long, we were able to let him cry and whenever our baby made a noise, we didn't necessarily come rushing in. We'd stand outside the room for a bit. And maybe in his heart and mind, he thought he was in the, the nursery wilderness, wondering why his parents weren't nearby, feeling desperately that he had a need, and that maybe we had abandoned him, his own little heart feeling these things. But had we failed him? No. Do we know where he was? Yes. Do we know what his need was? Usually. Were we going to let his need destroy him? Of course not. We always knew where he was. And we knew that what was urgent to him wasn't urgent. C.S. Lewis again in his book, The Screwtape Letters, the demon... Screwtape is writing to an underling demon, Wormwood. And he writes about how God works in trial to mature a Christian. This is what he writes. It is during the trough periods, more than during the peak periods, that the Christian is growing into the creature God wants him to be. And hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those that please him best. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore remove his hand. And if only the will to walk is there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, he says to the demon. 
The demon's cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do God's will, looks around a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. David looks around his wilderness from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and says, God is my God. I seek him. I long for him. I will praise him. I will lift my hands to him. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. I know that those who seek my life will be destroyed. I know I'm in the wilderness and I don't see him, but I know God is in the wilderness. And those who have driven me away from God's sanctuary and into this dry and weary land do not know that God is still with me. And they will be destroyed. I know that this is true. And this, in fact, is what happened. The rebellion was put down. David was restored to his throne. Where is God? I don't know. I long, I thirst, but I praise, I trust. You, may, you might need to know this morning that God may be trusted. How do I know that God may be trusted in whatever circumstance you find yourself in today? How do I know he can be trusted? Well, I know it because of something that happened a thousand years after David wrote this psalm and two thousand years before we got to read it. Jesus came. There was a very real wilderness, not just a sense of being thirsty, not just the feeling of being absent from God, but there was a very real separation. There had been a river once. We had been driven from it because we started dumping our toxic sin into it. We have this vague remembrance that there was a river or something like it some time ago. But now we're lost in the desert. We're trying to claw our way through the sand, think, seeking anything, anything at all that will quench our thirst, but not finding it. And we didn't even realize anymore that it was God that we were thirsty for. And if God's love is better than life, and separation from God is worse than death. But Jesus came. He died. His death was a toxic cleanse. And anyone who comes to the cross can be purified. And Jesus began to walk the desert, giving cups of water to everyone that he saw. And saying, there is more water. There is a river, an unlimited flow. Now that you've tasted a little bit of thirst quenching, I can bring you someplace where you will never thirst again. That which had driven us into the desert was put down, and restoration was there for all who desire to return. John 4, Jesus said, Everyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst again. Rags to riches, thirst to satisfaction, desert to to river, death to life, life lived in the love of God. Are you in a wilderness? Are you wondering right now if God can be trusted? Cling. 
He is absolutely worthy of trust. He has never failed in his trustworthiness. Even though you're crying for him, he might just be standing by the door. And he'll never come too late. He knows your need. He knows where you are. And he will always meet your need. Never later than you need it to be met. Maybe you're just thirsty. Maybe it's simply a return to the well that you need. Maybe you are, like I've often been, sitting with my back against the well and looking out all over the sand for something that will quench my thirst. And sometimes you just need to re-erect or redirect our attention. Just turn around. Look to God. Don't ignore. Don't crowd out. Take time to lower the bucket and draw it up, and you'll drink. And if you have never let Jesus lead you to the cross... Call his name and see him come running. Drink water. Be clean. Be clean. Let him bring you to the river and never thirst again. And folly of all folly, don't drink from Jesus' water only to trek back out onto the sand, hoping to find better water out there. There's no other stream. There's only one. Revelation 22. Come Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. God comes into the wilderness to lead us out. If you are thirsty, cling to him. If you need to know he's trustworthy, cling to him. Always. And today. We're going to have communion in a few moments where we remember and celebrate the fact that Jesus died to give us life, to give us God, to quench the thirst of our souls. And just before we do communion, I'm going to ask Frank to play a song. It's called Thirsty. And just to give that a listen, and then we'll come and have communion together.